0: Let's now turn again to John chapter 3. John chapter 3, we are in between long series. Uh, My favorite way of preaching is to, and I I believe the best way of preaching, is to preach through books of the Bible, one text at a time. We just finished going through 1 Peter. In a few weeks, we're going to start another one, but in between, just to give you a breather, we do something a little shorter. And we've been in John chapter 3 and are doing a brief study of this one crucial chapter of Scripture and considering what Jesus has to say about what it means to be born again, what it means to be saved, what it means to have eternal life. One of the burdens that a pastor always bears is wondering where the people that he stands before every week, where they stand with God. You don't answer to me. You answer to God himself. One of the prayers that I have for you is that every one of you would know Christ that you would be born again. But I will never stand in this pulpit and assume that everyone does. We need to come back to the truths of the gospel over and over and over again. And in our time, in our study of the word this morning, there's going to be one idea that continues to come up over and over and over again. Why? Because in John chapter 3, Jesus is talking to a religious man who is very well-educated in the scriptures who does not know him. And he's having a hard time understanding and really grasping what Jesus is teaching. And so Jesus hits him with the same idea from many different angles over and over and over and over again, much like we desperately need in our well-educated, highly religious Bible Belt culture. We all need it. Whether you've been saved for 10 minutes, or 50 years, or whether you have never come to saving faith yet, every one of us needs to hear what Jesus says to Nicodemus in John chapter 3. Last week we began by looking at verses 1 through 10. And for the sake of of review, we're going to read that text Uh, this morning as well. I want us to start reading like we did last week in chapter 2, verse 23. And I want us to read down through chapter 3, verse 21. So we're in John chapter 3, backing up a few verses to chapter 2, verse 23. If you'll follow along as I read. Now when Jesus was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them, because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. last week in verses one through ten we learned about the nature of salvation through the imagery of new birth the birth imagery shows us that salvation is not something that we achieve for ourselves it's not something we can just decide to do flip a switch accomplish a few tasks on a list and then voila it's done it is not something we can achieve through our own efforts our own ingenuity our own wisdom, or merits. This imagery teaches us that the new birth is a work of sovereign grace. It is a work of God's power alone, from beginning to end. Man's performance has no effect whatsoever to broker peace with God or gain eternal life. And we saw last week, that's not a negative thing to say. That's actually a very good thing, because if our salvation depended on ourselves, we wouldn't achieve it, and even if we could, we wouldn't keep it, because we are all over the place. We are sinners. And so we learned in verses 1 through 10 that understanding the new birth and understanding the nature of salvation is vital, It is crucial in finding eternal life and assurance of our salvation. What it is that we put our confidence in for eternal life makes all the difference. And There is only one place where we can find solid assurance. And until we understand that salvation is an act of God, a supernatural divine act in which our best characteristics and performances are useless, we cannot find true salvation because we haven't come to the end of ourselves yet. Salvation is to be found in the Lord Jesus Christ alone, apart from any work we can do on our own. Only God can give it, but God gives it to those who are in Christ, to those who call on the name of Christ. So, if salvation is a work of God alone, and He gives it to whomever He will, according to His grace and mercy, Does this mean we have no responsibility at all? Does this mean that we are to just sit back and and wait for God to to save us, that that we ought to just kind of let go and not even worry about it? Does this absolve us as a church from any evangelistic effort in our community? Certainly not. To come to such a stance would be to misunderstand what Jesus teaches about salvation. But with all of us, as Jesus has to do here with Nicodemus, he first needs to correct our thinking about ourselves and about what salvation really is. Otherwise, we don't really know what we're seeking. Jesus needs to break down our natural sinful worldviews, our natural sinful views of man-centeredness and self-sufficiency. Because is it not true? that our natural bent is to believe the best about ourselves? I mean, I know I'm a sinner, but come on, I'm not all that bad. I mean, I'm a sinner, but man, good night, I'm not Trevor. You know, We, we compare ourselves among ourselves and we try to give ourselves the benefit of the doubt, right? We have a tendency to trust in our own efforts. As if, yeah, I know salvation is all, all of God, but, but I still feel like I need to do this and this and this. We tend to think in characteristic American style that we can make ourselves into whatever we want to be simply by gritting our own teeth and by our own efforts. By nature, we do not want to hear that we are sinful. We do not want to hear that we are rebellious people against God Almighty, and that because of that we are hopeless, and we are, without even trying for it, destined for eternal judgment. We don't want to hear that. We don't want to accept that. And so, the basis for our sin and our lost condition, our separation from God, is the same now as it has been from the very beginning. Going all the way back to Genesis 3, we find that the... The the heart of the problem is man's pride and self sufficiency and determination to live independently of God. And until we come to the end of that, we do not truly believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this tends to carry over into our thinking of salvation. We tend to think that we can be right with God if and when we want to, and that we can achieve it by our own efforts in our own way, and on our own terms. And so a key point of Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus in verses 1 to 10 is to teach the total depravity of man, his utter inability to seek after God or to save himself. He's revealing that by nature, the best of us are sinners and are lost. We are spiritually dead. We're not just hurt. We're not just sick. We are dead in our trespasses and sins. And so only a radical transformation will do. Only a new birth will do. That's the starting point. And it sets the stage for verses 11 through 21, where Jesus now teaches what we must do in order to be saved. Now, I told you last week, there is no how-to about this. It's not, okay, follow these steps. But he does tell us, okay, so what is it? If you can't earn salvation on your own, what is it that brings you to salvation? What is it that God is expecting of us? So this text, verses 11 through 21 this morning, this text is a continuation of this midnight conversation that Jesus has with Nicodemus. But at this point, Nicodemus sort of fades into the background And Jesus goes into a monologue, if you will, about the nature of true saving faith in the light of what he has just said. After establishing the sovereignty of God in salvation apart from all human effort, Jesus now brings into focus the responsibility of mankind to respond in faith. And he teaches that in three stages, or three logical phases, and that's what I want us to see this morning. He begins by highlighting man's natural unbelief. Then he highlights God's call to faith. And then he brings it to man's necessary response. And so first of all, I want us to notice that Jesus speaks in verses 11 and 12 about man's natural unbelief. We saw that in in verses 9 and 10. Nicodemus doesn't understand what Jesus was telling him about the nature of salvation. Now, Nicodemus is an Old Testament scholar. Remember that. He's an expert in the Old Testament. He is the prominent teacher in Israel. But this idea that he needed to be born again by God's grace and not by his own efforts simply isn't computing. It goes against the tradition of the Israelite religious leaders. This is a revolutionary thought. It is counterintuitive to what he has been taught. It is countercultural to him as it is to many today. Nicodemus was unable to understand the basic, simple concept of new birth because he could not understand his own sinfulness and his own inability. So Jesus rebukes him in verse 10 for his lack of understanding, but then in his grace and in his mercy and in his incredible patience, he goes on and he continues to teach him to help him understand what he's getting at. So in verses 11 and 12, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? Again, we have that phrase, truly, truly, I say to you. It highlights the importance and that the central truth of what Jesus is saying here, the gravity of what he is saying. To understand salvation... To understand eternal life and eternal security and being right with God, we have to get what he is saying right here. And he says, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen. Why does he say we? Is that the royal we? I don't think Jesus ever walked around using the royal we. When he says we, he means more than one. Why? Well, I think right here, he's probably referring not just to himself, but to whatever his disciples have been teaching to this point, possibly even to the teaching of John the Baptist before him. We have proclaimed this new birth. We have proclaimed the salvation through the Messiah. And he says they speak and bear witness of what they know and what they have seen. He's referring to authority and experience here. Now understand, I'm not saying that experience on its own is inherently authoritative. As if, well, I saw it, so it has to be true. That's not what he's saying here. He's talking about authority and true objective experience. You see, Nicodemus was a teacher who had authority, but his, his authority was invested in him by earthly means. Jesus speaks with heavenly authority. Remember what we read in Mark chapter 1, the amazement? Here's a man among us who speaks and teaches with authority, unlike all these other religious leaders. He speaks with a heavenly authority, given by his Father and revealed in his word. And in addition to that, his followers also spoke with a certain authority because they had experienced the new birth. They had walked with Jesus. They had heard his teaching. They experienced the new birth for themselves. So in contrast to Nicodemus, who should have understood salvation from the Old Testament, Jesus' followers truly did understand it, and that is what they were proclaiming. That is what was causing such a stir among the the Israelites. And then Jesus says, but you don't receive our testimony. And again, that word you is plural. Not just you, Nicodemus. But you and all of the religious teachers and all of the nation of Israel are not receiving this testimony. The problem that you have, Nicodemus, is not that you lack information. It's not that the truth is unavailable or unclear. Your problem is that you don't receive what's been revealed to you. They didn't accept it. They didn't want to believe it. This is the heart of man's problem, then and now. It's not that we lack the right information. We have the Word of God available to us. It's that we are rebels at heart. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1-3 through three say, says that, that without Christ, we are dead in sin. We are natural-born rebels who hate God and want nothing to do with Him. We are unbelievers by nature. Romans 1 reinforces that, teaching that all who are without Christ are not wandering around just wondering, oh, I want to be saved, but what should I do? No, they're wandering around suppressing the truth that has been revealed to them. Because they are unbelievers. The bottom line is that the natural man does not want to be accountable to a holy God or to submit to Him. Why? Why? Because in our sinful nature, we love ourselves. We love our sin. We do not want to be exposed to God's holiness. And get this, we don't even want to be exposed to his salvation apart from the working of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Now, moving on to verse 12, Jesus continues to rebuke him and to expose man's unbelief he says if i have told you earthly things and you do not believe how can you believe if i tell you heavenly things these earthly things he's referring to here are the truths of the new birth i'm telling you what happened to these people i'm telling you what salvation is like and how how to accomplish it right here right now and if you can't believe that then how are you going to believe the loftier things the heavenly things that these these loftier aspects of salvation, the the heavenly truths that Jesus will teach throughout the course of His life to His disciples, things like the relationship of the Son to the Father, or the nature of God's kingdom, or how His redemptive plan is is working throughout all history, and so on. It's like Jesus is telling Nicodemus here: I can only I, I cannot go any further with you until you understand the basic truth of. God's sovereignty and your own sin. And that's where this begins for everybody. I get questions about uh, angels and different trivial aspects of Scripture details from people. And I want to cry out to them, listen, this stuff means nothing to you until you come to the end of yourself and realize... You need to be saved. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, verse 3, at the very beginning of his Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the poor in spirit. That's what this is talking about. Blessed are those who have come to the end of themselves, who recognize their utter helplessness before God and cry out to him for mercy. Those people are blessed. Those people are richly blessed. Why? Because they can see the salvation that God gives through Christ by grace alone. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And so for Nicodemus and for all of us today, this is what we need to understand about ourselves, that we are poor in spirit. Be done with this thought that we are all basically good people who've just tripped up in a few ways. We are lost. We are hopeless. We are, Scripture says, rebels against God and destined for eternal judgment without Christ. We are not okay. And yet our tendency is to be self-sufficient, to be self-confident, self-focused, and determined to take care of ourselves on our own. Right? We may be interested in Jesus as a companion or as a help, or as the license plate says, a co-pilot. But we're not interested in submitting to Him. We're not interested in acknowledging our guilt and our helplessness. We are not interested in submitting to His Lordship and His sovereignty and handing over everything to Him. Such is the state, no matter how religious we are, such is the state of every person by nature, by default, unbelievers, and condemned by the Creator of heaven and earth. Friends, if you are not in Christ this morning, that is where you stand. And I don't say that because I hate you. I don't say that to be harsh. I say that because you need to realize the plight that you are in. You need to realize the danger that you are in. And it is incredibly bad news. And if that is the end of the story, we are hopeless. Because if John 3 verses 1 through 12 are true, and if Jesus is who he says he is, then it is not a comforting thought to think of what will happen to us when we stand before God. But this is not the end of the story. This is only the bad news that makes the good news so great. This is only the black backdrop that makes the diamond pop. And we thank God for His grace and mercy. Mankind by nature is lost in sin, alienated from God, condemned to eternal punishment, but God is merciful and gracious. And through Christ... God has made it possible to escape eternal punishment, to be reconciled to himself, and to receive eternal life. And that leads us to our second phase of Jesus' teaching here. Not just man's unbelief, but God's call to faith. We see that in verses 13 through 17. Verse 13 says, No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. That verse might seem to be a little off topic at first. What's he talking about who ascended and descended? The one who ascended is the one who descended. What's he getting at there? This is reinforcing the truth of man's inability and Jesus' authority to say what he is saying. No one has ascended into heaven. What's he saying? No one has seen God. No one's been there. You haven't been there. You haven't talked with God directly about how salvation works. You weren't there to work out the plan, but there is one who has been there. You don't know how to get into heaven to find out how salvation is supposed to work, but there is one who has been there. He is the one who descended from heaven, namely the Son of Man. Who is that? It's the one who's speaking right here, Jesus In John chapter 1, we read that Jesus is the revelation of God to man. And he is the one who came and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Man cannot go into heaven to find out who God is and how to be reconciled to him. But there is one who has come from heaven to reveal that truth to man. Salvation is not a matter of human discovery. It is about divine revelation. It is about God revealing and communicating to man who he is and what salvation, what salvation is and how it is accomplished. God did not, did not hide this from us. He indeed communicates it to man through Jesus Christ. In Hebrews chapter 1, we read that in these last days, God has spoken to us, how? Through his son, through Jesus Christ. The New Testament consistently teaches that Jesus is the revelation of God to man. In Jesus, we learn what God is like and we learn how to be reconciled to him. In Jesus, we have access into the heavenly places. We have access to God. In Jesus, we find the only Savior. We find the source of salvation, and we find the way of salvation. Since he is the only one who has come from heaven, he is the only one who can bring us to heaven. He is the only one who can accomplish all these things and give us peace with God and salvation for eternity. As he says in John fourteen six, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And so we must look to him and we must listen to what he says. In verse 14, Jesus begins to explain what he is talking about. He gives another illustration as he explains the remedy that he provides for man's hopelessness. This is the good news. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Again, it's another reference to the Old Testament. He's an Old Testament scholar. Nicodemus would have known exactly what Jesus was talking about here. This time, Jesus makes reference to a particular account in Old Testament history, in Israel's history, and what he is talking about is Numbers chapter 21. Turn back with me to Numbers chapter 1. Or, excuse me, Numbers chapter 21 so that we can see what Jesus is talking about. In this chapter, Israel is still wandering in the wilderness. And they're having a hard time with their attitudes toward God, as they did for most of that time in the wilderness. Look at Numbers chapter 21, starting in verse 4. From Mount Hor, they set, they, they set out by the way to the Red Sea, to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way. Nothing new happened all the time in the wilderness. God was constantly dealing with this. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Wait a minute. There's no food, Moses. Well then what food do they loathe the food that god sovereignly provided for them in the wilderness they've lost sight of that verse six how does the lord respond oh i'm so sorry here here's something better what does god do verse six then the lord sent fiery serpents among the people i don't know what that means were they actually on fire Or was it like fire ants, where when they bit, it really, really burned? I don't know. But whatever it was, he sends these fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many many people of Israel died. Verse 7, And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. And the Lord said, wait a minute, I did that last time. Not again, Israel. So what happens? So Moses prayed for the people. Verse 8, and the Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten when he sees it shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole, and if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. What an amazing story. It's amazing because the solution to the people's problem was completely unexpected. In fact, I believe that the whole purpose of this account was given by God to illustrate the cross later. God judges the people for their incessant complaining by sending snakes to bite them. And then he instructs Moses to make a bronze model of a snake to set it on a pole, and to hold it up so that anyone who looks at the snake on the pole will be healed. No self-effort. No medication. Simply look at the snake pole and you'll live. Not too hard, right? Look and live. Look and live. Look and and live but here's where the hard part comes in when jesus teaches the implication of this illustration just as the serpent was lifted up on the pole to save all who looked at it he says so must the son of man be lifted up jesus is drawing a clear parallel here between himself and that snake on a pole that life-saving serpent. When he says must, he shows that this is a necessary part of God's saving plan. If you try to treat the wound yourself, you will die. If you try to fix this on your own, you will die. If you will abandon your pride and look at the pole, look at the son of man, you will live. You will live. This idea of him being lifted up is a foreshadowing both of the cross and of his later exaltation. He says this to show how he would die and what would come next. And then in verse 15, Jesus teaches why it's going to be that way. He says that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Eternal life is a prominent theme in the the Gospel of John. This is the first of 15 references to it. Eternal life, as one commentator defined it, is the believer's participation in the blessed, everlasting life of Christ through his or her union with him. And Jesus put it this way in John 17, 13. This is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. And this eternal life is not just long life. It is a life of the highest quality in the presence of God. It is peace with God and union with God. It is being reconciled to God and living according to God's design and God's creation for all of eternity. Those who follow Christ get a taste of this eternal life right here and right now. And one day it will be fully realized when Christ returns and we see him face to face. And this promise of eternal life belongs to whoever believes in him. You see that? It doesn't belong to whoever figures it out on their own. It doesn't belong to whoever cleans themselves up appropriately enough. It doesn't doesn't belong to those who think they can fix themselves. It belongs to whoever looks and lives. Look and live, Jesus said. This belongs to whoever looks to Christ in poverty of spirit, who acknowledges his own sinfulness and helplessness, who renounces all self-sufficiency and self-effort, and who cries out to God for mercy through Christ alone. You see, salvation is not just a bunch of mental facts. It's not just acknowledging certain things to be true. This is a change of heart. It is a humble submission It is a recognition of Jesus Christ as God and as Lord of my life and I am no longer trying to make my way on my own I am no longer living according to my own ideas and I am no longer saying well I think God would be this way and therefore I follow the God of my own imagination it is no longer that beware any religion or religious practice that makes you an authority on the matter. and look to Jesus Christ. So in verse 13, Jesus announces that he alone has firsthand knowledge of heavenly things, and he is giving God's perspective on the nature and way of salvation. Then in verses 14 and 15, he declares that the nature and way of salvation centers on him alone, and that all who will be saved will be saved only in him, and nothing else. So, how does that work? What should we think of next? Well, he goes on in verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. I think that's the most well-known verse in all of Scripture. And I think it's one of the favorites. Rivaled probably only by, judge not, that you be not judged, The word so here means in this way. The world is a non-specific reference to humanity in general. This verse is not teaching universal salvation because the rest of the verse will limit who this salvation belongs to, and so will verse 17. But the phrase here, God so loved the world, is getting at this idea. God loved the world in this way. Or here is how God demonstrated his love to the world. In what way? It says he gave his only son. And just stop there for a minute. He gave his only son. You fathers, what would you be willing to give one of your children for? No human words can adequately describe the magnitude of what Jesus just said right here. And by the way, this is the Son who is saying it. (laughs) My Father gave me up. My Father gave me. That's what he says. It is simply impossible to put into, into words the greatness of this gift that God has given to the world. The Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 9 simply calls it indescribable. John 3.16 is about as close as anyone gets to describing it, and all it says is God gave His Son, His only Son. But that says it all, doesn't it? I mean, really? This is the Son in whom the Father is well pleased. This is the one with whom the Father has had eternal fellowship, this is the one who is the exalted focus of heaven. This is the one who is the, the prophesied champion of heaven throughout all ages, sending his one and only son to die on behalf of sinful, rebellious men is the greatest manifestation of God's love he can ever give. Romans 5.8. God demonstrated his love for us in that while we were still sinners Christ died for us you dare try to find out a love that is greater than that a greater gift than that what more could God give and to think he gave it for us he gave his son for completely unworthy people he gave his only son so that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. This gift of salvation is available to whoever believes. To all who believe that Jesus is the Son of God. To all who come to Him on His terms, repenting of their sin and their rebellion against God renouncing their self-effort towards salvation, falling into his loving and merciful hands alone. Again, to all who look and live. To all who look, they will live. And Jesus promises in no uncertain terms in John chapter 6, verse 37, that the one who comes to him in this way, he will certainly not cast out. Anyone who comes will live. That word perish essentially means to cast out. It means to receive God's eternal judgment that is designed for all who are not reconciled to Him through Christ. See, the reality is there is a judgment coming. There is a day of accountability, a day of reckoning, that will come when Christ returns and all who are not found under the blood of Jesus Christ will perish, will be cast out forever. But those who believe in Christ will not be cast out. They will not perish. They will never perish. They cannot lose their salvation because they have been given eternal life not by their own efforts but by God himself through his perfect son. And Jesus says in John 10, verses 27 through 29, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. True believers will be preserved by God, by His strength alone, they will never perish. This is the provision and promise that God gives regarding salvation. He sent His only Son, Jesus Christ, to be lifted up on the cross to die so that whoever looks to Him in faith for salvation, who renounces their trust in self, will not perish under God's judgment on sin, but will be given eternal life in perfect, reconciled relationship with God Himself. Now in verse 17, Jesus says, For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world. There were certain aspects of judgment that we see in Jesus' earthly ministry, like cleansing the temple, or casting out demons, or rebuking religious hypocrites. But judgment was not the main purpose of His earthly life. Judgment was the consequence of rejecting Him. And that judgment will be brought Into a consummation at his second coming, when he will fully and finally eradicate sin. But the rest of the verse tells us very plainly what his purpose really was in order that the world might be saved through him. Now we know that not all people are going to be saved, we see that in Scripture. So we know this verse is not teaching a universal salvation as if we're all just going to end up saved in the end. That's, that's not what Jesus is saying here. But what he is saying reinforces what he has already taught, that if anyone in the world is going to be saved, it is going to be through him alone. That's what he is saying. And it's also important to note here that the world is a reference not just to the Jews, but to all the nations. This would have also been a shock to the system for Nicodemus. But as a scholar of the Old Testament, he should have known it already. Because it's all over the Old Testament. The salvation of the nations has been God's plan from the very beginning. He said it to Abraham in the Abrahamic Covenant when he said that in him and in his descendants, all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed And so God's gracious offer of salvation is given to all who believe, regardless of what nation you come from, regardless of what background you have, regardless of your socioeconomic status, or your gender, or your personality, or your family. It is for all who believe. But it is based on God's sovereign gift alone. Your ethnic heritage does not keep you out of the kingdom of heaven. But it doesn't get you into it either. Your unbelief keeps you out of heaven. And faith in Jesus Christ gets you there. Christ alone. Look and live. We have no hope but Christ alone. But in Christ alone, we have all the hope we need. So when Jesus preaches an exclusive message... An exclusive gospel. There is no other way. That is not negative. That is not hateful. That is glorious news. Because we're lost in our sin, but praise God, He has made a way for salvation. Friends, stop trying to heal the wound on your own. Look and live. And that brings us to our third and final point, man's necessary response. We see this in verses 18 through 21. If a man is naturally an unbeliever, but God has provided for and called us to salvation by faith in Christ, then now we are at a crucial point of decision. This is where it all comes to a head for us. There is no neutral stand with Jesus. You are either... Coming to him, or you are running from him? Are we going to believe, or are we going to reject his call? How will you respond to the love of God in Christ Jesus? Don't look around the room at others. This isn't a message for that person sitting over there. This is for you. In verse 18, Jesus says, whoever believes in him is not condemned. Like we saw in verse 16, belief that this is belief that leads to eternal life, not condemnation. The apostle Paul confidently declares in Romans chapter 8, there is no condemnation. For those who are in Christ Jesus, that's a call, look and live, look to him and live. But on the other hand, Jesus goes on and says, whoever does not believe is condemned already. Jesus didn't have to come and condemn the world. The world is already condemned because of sin. By nature, we're already in that state. That's what we saw at the beginning. And what is the basis of our condemnation? because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what he says. Anyone who remains condemned has no one and nothing to blame but their own unbelief. You say, what about people who have never heard? Well, beloved, we better go, right? Because there is enough in creation Revealed about God to condemn us to eternity in hell. So we better go. We better get talking. And we better pray that God and His sovereignty would bring all of His people to that point of, of repentance and belief in the gospel. And we better pray that we are that mouthpiece. Right? Many will offer excuses for not believing. Well, there are hypocrites in the church, so I can't believe in God. Well, I've been through too much trauma, or that person was too mean to me, or I'm, I, I, can, I can do this on my or whatever it is. Many excuses, but the bottom line is this. People do not believe simply because they do not want to submit to God. That is the natural need. That is what we need to repent of. Verses 19 and 20 tell us why. This is the judgment, or this is what has happened to them. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were were evil. By nature, we have a distaste for the light of God, the light of Christ, because we love our evil works. And then in verse 20, everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. By nature, we don't just not have a taste for the light. We actually hate it because of our sinful nature. And so, as the Apostle Paul writes in Romans 3, no one seeks after God. There's none who are righteous. But on the contrary, to all who did believe, we read in John 1, he gave the right to become children of God. On the contrary, in verse 21, Whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Those who believe in Christ welcome the light. Those who have been brought to faith want the light of Christ, and it exposes us in our sin, yes, and that hurts. We don't like that. It's not comfortable, but it also brings us to the knowledge of salvation and eternal life. New birth, this new life, this eternal life belongs to all who believe in Christ, who follow Him as Lord. This isn't just a piece of information that we need to add to what we already know. This is something that is a complete life transformation. It is a new birth. It is a desperate need for every single one of us. You need Christ. But praise God, in Him you have all you need. And this is the call of Scripture. This is the call of the Gospel. Look and live. Look and live. So we're left with only two choices. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life or reject Him unto eternal judgment. Friends, where are you? Where are you today? Which choice are you making right now in this moment? What will you do with Jesus? I urge you, look and live. Let's pray.